Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 17 of the Double Cross Podcast, uh, Players Championship Recap Edition. Uh, it's just me again today. Uh, our esteem, everyone's favorite esteemed host, CJ Cadden, is uh, MIA for a work trip. So it's going to be me uh, sharing stories from the grounds. I got to go to TPC Sawgrass for a day this week uh, and talking about the tournament in general. Um, Scotty Scheffler, our newly crowned world number one, is uh, back at the top of his perch after a five-stroke win uh, that looked as dominant as that sounded uh, at TPC Sawgrass. Um, I don't think we can go any further without talking about um, Scotty, just his sixth win in, I believe, 392 days is the count that I saw online. Um, he becomes the third player to ever hold the Masters and the players at the same time, joining Jack and Nicholas and Tiger Woods, uh, which is a pretty ridiculous list. Um, so... I mean, uh, trying to it, it, we're reaching the point with Scotty Scheffler where you have to like try and ponder the context that you want to jump into it first. Um, first of all, uh, joining any list with just Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods. Um, but yeah, to recap, uh, Sunday didn't look super strong. It felt like on Sunday, but this kind of ties into the point that I wanted to make about Scotty. Overall, is this felt very different from Scotty Scheffler's other wins. Um, it's hard to make the case that a 25-year-old with a master's title on his resume has another win that felt like his biggest statement. Um, and candidly, the master's probably still was his biggest statement. Um, but all of his wins before, I mean, Augusta and Austin last year felt like or, I'm sorry, I'll go in chronological order. So his, his wins last year, he won in Phoenix, which was him coming out of a pack. It felt like he was just kind of overdue. The breaks finally went his way for once. Um, Bay Hill, similar thing. It was kind of like, oh, this is a regression to the mean. Scotty's coming second a lot. He's coming third a lot. He's been uh, had some bad luck on Sundays. Um, and then Austin and Augusta just felt like a golfer that was on a heater, like announcing himself. Like, it felt like someone who was just playing out of their minds on the run of their life and just translating it as much as they could. Um, he never really got behind in any match in Austin, took world number one by the horns there. Augusta, he led by five after two rounds, I believe, um, and had controlled the tournament the entire weekend, never really let it get too close. Um, I know it felt like Rory could have kind of like fake one for a second there, but it was always Scotty. Um, and, uh, Phoenix this year was kind of more the same from the first time around of like it being this kind of group and Scotty not really separating himself until the very end. But this week in particular just felt so inevitable the entire way through in a way that I don't think I've felt about a golfer since like Brooks Kepka at majors five years ago in like that 2016 to 2018 stretch. Um, Scotty Scheffler opened with a four under 68. He was four back, uh, three back of Colin Morikawa, four back of Chad Ramey, 
And I texted Max Rigo, who was on this preview podcast with me, that it was over. I was like, okay, Scotty won. Like he was in like fifth or sixth after round one, four back. And I was like, yeah, it's over. Scotty wins. And yeah, he just kept rising every single day. I mean, he gets like after two rounds, he's second at seven under. Uh, he's leading by two after Saturday. And he, again, it was like kind of deceptive because it didn't feel like he played super well today either. Um, he uh, hit a bad tee shot on one. Um, uh, pulled it left, uh, pulled his approach shot from the middle of the fairway on two, uh, missed an easy up and down uh, par putt on three. Um, and I feel like that kind of further emphasized how much Scotty has grown over the last year and changed to the point where hit. Like he can look that shaky and still play that much better than everybody else. I mean, if you look through the final groups that came out of the course today, um, Scotty shot 69. And like I said, it felt really rough for the first like six, seven holes. Felt like he was kind of teetering. And you look at the other guys in those final groups um, David Lingmurth, even par, Sung JM, even par, Cameron Davis, 74, Minwoo Lee, 76. I'll get to Minwoo Lee a little bit later. Christian Bazadenhout, uh, 74. Uh, Aaron Rye, 75. Uh, Chad Ramey, 76. Tommy Fleetwood, 76. All of these guys that Scotty is playing around. And again, the winds just get getting heavier and heavier and heavier as the day goes along. And everyone that's playing around Scotty is shooting in the mid-70s. And it looks visibly like Scotty is playing just as bad as they are, and he shoots 69. And that is... DJ and I have been pounding the table about it for forever. That's the difference between a good golfer and a great golfer is like, how can you not have it and still not you shoot yourself out of a tournament? And there's this inevitability with Scotty now, or it just feels like he's going to make the shots and he's going to find the score. And I know after he won in Phoenix earlier this year, I made the comp of like Jordan Spieth 2.0. And that kind of is what he feels like to me a little bit of um, someone who never looks like he has his best game going a uh, premier iron player, premier scrambler, uh, not the most accurate off the tee. He's gotten a lot better this year, but like someone who never feels like he's in control, but always ends up near the top of leaderboards. Um, If you want to look at his like recent stretch of form, uh, I don't think he's finished worse than 12th since his season debut. Uh, this is his second win now. Um, if you're going to look through Scotty Scheffler's recent run of form, uh, including this player's win, obviously the win at Phoenix. Uh, Let me find... This is unprofessional. I'm sorry about this weight. Uh, he's up to third in the FedEx Cup. Yes, up to third in the FedEx Cup. Um, okay, I found the wrong spot to look for it. But yeah, he uh, finished fourth at Bay Hill last week, I believe. I, I should not be doing this from memory. I'm just going to look because that's more effective. Um. 
if it'll load. Yeah, so Scotty Scheffler's recent starts, uh, actually all of his starts in this 2022-2023 season so far. T45 at the CJ Cup, T3 at Mayakoba, T9 at the Houston Open, T, uh, second at the Hero World Challenge, T7 at the Century Tournament of Champions, T11 at the American Express, first at Phoenix, T12 at Genesis, T4 at the Arnold Palmer, first in the players. Like he is, hasn't won, well, even you can't even really say that because I was going to say he hasn't won as much as last year, but his third win last year came at the match play, which is in two weeks. Um, this is a better season than Scotty Scheffler had last year. And the Scotty Scheffler that we are watching is a better golfer than we saw last year. And that is hard to fathom with how good Scotty Scheffler was last season. Um, he has nine top twos in the last two seasons. Nine top twos. Um, I mean you just kind of lose ways to talk about it after a little while. Um, and there's so many anecdotal examples you can think of, of just. So I tweeted about this earlier today. Um, I feel like, and this is a conversation I want to have with DJ when we're back together. Um, I feel like the idea of being clutch among like the top five or six players in the world is a bit overblown. I think when you get to a tier like Rory, Rom, uh, Scotty, JT, um, when you get to that caliber of guy, the guy that's going to be in the Hall of Fame one day, they all know how to win and they all want the ball and they all make the putts. They just, you, they contend so often with their talent level and their floor is so high that they don't make every putt. Like Rory last week at Bay Hill was a great example, or Scotty last week, or Speak last week at Bay Hill were all great examples. All three of them are incredible golfers, like top tier, going to be in the Hall of Fame one day, going to win 20 plus PGA Tour events. Uh, Rory already has. All three of them have putts, head putts that would have beaten Kirk Kitayama. None of them made them. That doesn't mean that Rory Spieth and Scotty can't win golf tournaments. Very clearly, Scotty can. But like, if you put yourself in contention that often with your talent level, you're not going to make every putt. However, there is something just inevitable about Scotty Scheffler. And I felt like the pit, the chip in he had on eight today was eerily reminiscent of his hole out on th at three at Augusta last year. Um, those who don't remember, Scotty Scheffler uh, opened the final round at Augusta with a commanding lead over Cameron Smith uh, and let it kind of peter away. Um, I believe they were tied after two holes, or maybe the lead was down to one. I believe they were tied. Um, I think he had a three-shot lead, and they were tied after two holes. And Scotty has a pitch that is rolling really hard, hits the stick, and drops. And ever since then, and or, or since for the rest of that round, he kind of cruises. Uh, Cam Smith tries to go nuclear and doesn't, and Scotty Scheffler wins the green jacket comfortably despite four-putting on the last green. And then today, um, Scotty Scheffler looks a little shaky. As I mentioned earlier, he pulled his tee shot on one, pulled his second shot on two, a uh, bad bogey on three, a uh, bad tee shot on four, um, bad wedge shot on six after he drove it down there commandingly. 
Um, and Minwoo, all of a sudden, Minwoo Lee rolls in, despite making a triple bogey on the fourth hole. Minwoo Lee rolls in a 30-footer on seven, and all of a sudden, Scotty's lead is two. And a tournament that looked like Scotty was going to be on cruise control the entire week, all of a sudden, or the rest of the day, all of a sudden looks like it's hanging in the balance again. And then you get to the eighth hole, and Scotty's hitting this awkward little chip where he's standing in the bunker, and he can't aim at the flag because the green is, like, diagonal to him, basically. It's just this slope. Uh, and he holds it. It's a beautiful chip, rolls in with dying speed, and makes five straight birdies. Birdies eight, birdies nine, birdies ten, birdies eleven, birdies twelve, and then you look up and Scotty Scheffler's leading by six. And it, there is a certain, for as much as I just went on that little tangent about how like clutchness is just a thing that all of these top players have, and I think trying to dumb it down to like moment to moment is just kind of silly. Um, there is something to be said for the idea that Scotty Scheffler has these big moments time and time again that he puts himself in with his talent level and he keeps delivering. And as much as we like to, to say, and I think there's merit to this, obviously it's not a complete conversation because he's also improved as a golfer. But as much as there's merit to the idea that Scotty Scheffler's rise last season uh, and this season is just regression to the mean and that he had some bad breaks in his first couple seasons that finally went his way. As much as there's merit there, there's also merit to the idea that Scotty Scheffler learned how to hit the shot, like the shot in capital TS. Um, and that was the shot at three at Augusta, which might have been lucky, but he also hit it online with the stick. Um, that was the shot at eight today. Um that was the three Woody hit on 12 with water left. Um, so many moments where Scotty Scheffler had a shot that he just needed to hit. The pitch on 10 was incredible. I mean, Paul Azinger talked about how ridiculously hard this pitch was going to be at 10 for like a minute straight. Um, he talked about how Scotty Scheffler needed to land it over this bunker with this green slanting away from the pin uh, downhill towards this rough. The green's gotten harder all day. Um, and Azinger's like, he almost needs to like land this left of the hole with like cut spin and just like roll it off the slope towards the flag. And Scotty Scheffler hits this like scoopy, handsy, tight lie pitch that lands like 10 feet left of the hole and like cuts perfectly towards it and goes like six feet away and he buries the putt. And Azinger's like, yeah, kind of like that. <laughs> like, that's the shot. That is the shot, capital TS. And that is what Scotty Scheffler has learned how to hit. And when you get a guy whose hands are that good, you don't unlearn it. And I think that is the scary thing and why we're seeing him elevate himself to a tier where Candidly, even as a even as a big Rory fan, I think it's just him and Rom up there right now. Uh, and I don't dispute the fact that I think Scotty's the number one player in the world. Um, obviously, it's unfortunate uh, John Rom uh, had to withdraw with a uh, stomach virus, I believe, earlier this week. He cited illness, um, and it's unfortunate John Rom shot an opening round seventy one. 
Uh, and it would have been cool to see him kind of uh, fight around for the weekend and see how far he could have risen. But this is two straight weeks now where Scotty Scheffler and John Rahm have been in the same field, and John Rahm has been a non-story, and Scotty Scheffler had a chance to win and then won. Two of the biggest fields of the year. Um, uh, he has, since the start of 2023, so since he showed up in Kapalua for the Century Tournament of Champions, Scotty Scheffler has played 24 rounds on the PGA Tour. Five of them have been in the 70s, and three of those were exactly 70. 22 of the 24 rounds Scotty Scheffler has played since January 1st have been 70 or lower. That is how good he is playing at different styles of golf courses. I know this was mentioned by Kyle Porter, by Nolang Up, by Sean Martin all week. Augusta is a course that really emphasizes approach play and scrambling and driving distance. DPC Sawgrass is a second shot golf course uh, that really values accuracy and approach shots. Um, Phoenix really values approach play. Uh, Bay Hill is like this long, narrow, like survival test. He's passing different tests and he's passing them with flying colors. Um, in a way that not a lot of other golfers on the planet can match even to the degree of contending. I mean, there aren't many guys who there are three guys right now, I think on the planet that are like course proof in terms of, I think that they should not be counted out anywhere they play just because they're that talented. And I think it's John Rahm, Scotty Scheffler, and Rory McIlroy. And I think Scheffler is chief among them in terms of guys that you absolutely need to consider no matter where he is because he just can adapt his game to any course. And it makes sense when you think about it because his game is just iron play and short game. And there's not a course on the planet that doesn't translate with iron play and short game. Um, God, you just can't wax poetic enough about it um man i don't know that's uh he's the new number one player in the world and i last note on scotty i am going to talk about this with dj when he gets back of course again um he feels so inevitable for augusta he just feels he is so built for that course. If you view it like he's a premier iron player with great distance control, hits a lot of greens in regulation with really good proximity. He's an incredible scrambler. He's great at bogey avoidance. He's a really good lag putter. He is such a good course fit for Augusta. And he is playing better than last year when he won by like multiple strokes. And that doesn't always mean everything. I mean, there are guys that play better the year of their title defense than the year they won a title and they don't win. But whoever wins the green jacket, if it's not Scotty Scheffler, whoever wins the green jacket is going to have to beat Scotty Scheffler for it. And candidly, there aren't many people who can beat Scotty Scheffler on the planet right now.
and this just feels so silly because I feel like I was having this exact, I literally three weeks ago on this, two weeks ago on this podcast, I told DJ, I felt like we were in a John Rahm or the field situation going into Augusta. And now two weeks later, here I am saying we're in a Scotty Scheffler or the field situation for Augusta. So maybe I should just learn to keep my mouth shut. Um, but God, Scotty Scheffler's good. He's so, so good. Um, and he's an incredible course fit for Augusta and feels like everything is just trending towards that. Um, I would have a hard, hard time imagining he's not in the final three or four groups on Sunday, uh, barring something completely unforeseen. Um, he's going to be part of the equation. He just is. And there are going to be other people you can plug and play, whether it's Rom, Rory, Spieth, um, all those guys have been playing well. Uh, Rory this week, notwithstanding. We'll get to that later on. Um, but Scotty Scheffler is going to be in the mix at Augusta. And if someone beats him out, if someone makes them put the green jacket, but if someone makes him put the green jacket on him this year, they're gonna have to beat Scotty for it. And that's gonna be hard. Um so I told I said on the podcast with Max last week that this this the month leading the Masters is my favorite week of the year, but the the month leading up to the Masters is like almost as good because you get to talk about all the guys and like whether they're peaking at the right time or not. Scotty Scheffler's been peaking for a year and a half. Oh, God, every win that Scotty and Rom had like tallies, and even Rory in Dubai, every win that they tally gets you more excited for the year's first major. Um. So yeah, Scotty Scheffler uh, is a Players Champion, six-time PGA Tour winner. Uh, quickly developing a bit of like a Hall of Fame resume. Um, wins big boy events everywhere. Uh, Phoenix twice, Bay Hill, uh, a WGC, the Match Play, Augusta, and Players is a huge resume. Uh, and to have it at his age, uh, and, and so few starts, I think he's, they said he's the fourth player of the last however many years to win six times in his first hundred starts, which feels ridiculous because he didn't win in his first like seventy starts. Um. So, yeah, Scotty Scheffler is—he's uh, learned how to do it, and he doesn't really look like he has any designs on stopping anytime soon. Um. But yeah, so looking at the rest of everybody else, uh, I feel like 25 minutes uh, by myself is enough time to talk about Scotty Scheffler uh, and how good he is. Uh, no, it's not. Actually, there's one last thing. Um, however good you thought Scotty Scheffler hit the ball this week, uh, he was better. <laughs> um, Scotty Scheffler uh, led the field in strokes gained T to green uh, at 4.3 strokes gained around, according to Data Golf. Um, the second best player in the field uh, was Tom Hoagie, who gained 2.94. Uh, so Scotty Scheffler was a stroke and a half better tee to green than anybody else in the entire field. Um, and that's been a trend this year. I mentioned uh, my question that I posed to Max at the start of the pod last week was, tell me Scotty Scheffler isn't going to win this golf tournament. And he was like, I can't. And I uh, was like, he, everything is pointing to Scotty Scheffler. He was one of only two people that have gained more than two strokes tee to green so far this season, which is surely continuing. 
and I didn't pick him because I'm an idiot. So points for the future. If you hear me mention somebody and say I don't see how they're not going to win and then I don't pick them, hammer them, especially if it's Scotty Scheffler. Because I believe the last time that I said that Scotty Scheffler's numbers looked really good, but he wasn't going to win was the 2022 Masters. So I don't know if Scotty Scheffler listens to my podcast or if he follows me on Twitter or what, but I am somehow providing him ammo and he doesn't need it. And yet I keep giving it to him. So uh, yeah, that is. Yep. Yes. Um, But uh, talking about the other guy in the final group, because uh, I want to, I want to uh, touch on him as well. Minwoo Lee, um, man, just a total star-making performance. I mean, I mentioned this going into the final round, uh, especially after the first couple holes. Uh, that the best thing that was going to come from this week is that everyone was going to fall in love with Minwoo Lee. And he is the kind of kid, and I've been screaming from the rooftops for like two years now. Minwoo Lee is the kind of player that is that makes golf more fun. Um, he has all different kinds of shots in the bag. He's young. He's kind of personable. He's a silly little mustache. Um, Minwoo Lee is the kind of player that is fun in golf, and so you get excited when people like him show up in big tournaments when like the average casual fan doesn't know their name uh, and kind of makes a name for himself. And he had the perfect performance in that sense. Statistically was probably always a bit of a fraud. Um, If you look through his numbers for the week, uh, he lost a stroke and a half around with his irons uh, for the week, including 5.2 strokes lost on Sunday. Um, he was putting it incredibly well, uh, hitting the ball off the tee incredibly well, but a lot of that came with irons and three woods. Very clearly was not feeling comfortable with the driver. I think he only hit it three times today, and he hit one fairway out of those three times. Uh, he hit it well, well right on two and well, well left on 11. Um, so very clearly not comfortable with the driver. Wasn't hitting his irons well, but just putted his way into it. And you could feel the confidence just emanating from that putting stroke. I mean, he, I watched him hit the par putt on three, the par putt on five, the birdie putt on seven. These are like 20 footers at Sawgrass that he is like starting to walk them in five feet out. And that's the kind of energy that golf really needs is that like confidence that like teeters toward arrogance, like candidly. But it's earned. I mean, Minwoo Lee has been this person for so long. He was a junior amateur winner in 2016, uh, junior all like all star, and he has just been catapulting towards the top of the world rankings um, for a long time. And it wasn't a perfect week on paper, but it was all we needed to see. Uh, to know that Minwoo Lee is part of golf's future. Uh, I told Max Rigo, I think he's going to be a top 10 player in the world someday. Um, funny enough, this week didn't do a lot more to convince me in that sense. 
Again, partially because it was just... Oh, jeez. Sorry. Partially because it was just Min Woo Lee riding a hot putter into contention. Um, but this week didn't do a whole lot more to convince me. But like I said, I was already convinced. Um, but he just has effortless, effortless power. I mean, the numbers that he was hitting uh, on the broadcast, they were showing his club head speed just routinely touching 125. His ball speed in the high 190s just consistently. Um, and it, it reminds me, like, one of my first memories of Min Woo was uh, him talking to Jason Day at the 2016 Australian Open. And then in his presser later, um, this is back when Jason Day was, like, on top of the golf world. Like, Jason Day was the number one player in the world. He'd won seven PGA Tour events in the last two years or something. Minwoo had just turned pro. He was a superstar junior. Um, and Minwoo is in the press conference, and everyone's talking to Minwoo, and he goes, yeah, Jason told me he was scared of me. And then, like, 40 minutes later, someone's like, hey, Jason, Minwoo said you were scared of him. And Jason's like, I am a little bit scared of Minwoo. He hits the ball too far. Um. And that sold me at 15, I think, when I saw that. I was like, yo, if world number one is scared of this guy, how good is he? Um, and I think Minwoo kind of gets a little bit of the Joaquin Neiman treatment a little bit of he got introduced to the professional game so young. I mean, he we've been hearing about his struggles to get DP World Tour status and where he was going to play since like 2018, 2019. And he's only 24. Like the Ludwig Abrug, who's number one in the PGA Tour University rankings, is like the same age as Ben Lee. Like he's two years younger than Scotty. Who, again, won for the first time in the PGA Tour a year ago. Ben Lee is so young. Um, and so, yeah, he's probably not a polished player, candidly, but his irons struggled this week, and that was why I picked him as a dark horse coming into this week is because his irons have been so good. And so, yeah, again, maybe he's not the most polished player on the planet right now, but for a guy with that length and that kind of confidence and that ability to adapt his game, like for a guy who hits the ball as far as Min Woo, to also be able to pull out that two iron and just use it on command, and also be that good on the greens and that confident on the greens and also be able to contend when a part of his game that's really strong is weaker than usual. All of that projects so well for Minwuli's future. Um, and it was also just really refreshing to see someone engage with the fans to that capacity, especially having not a great day. I mean, it's got to be so easy to be comfortably in second and like sort of fake dueling Scotty for the win through seven holes to being like outside the top 15 after you double the 11th hole, you're lighting money on fire. And for you to do that and never fully recover and get to the seventh green and like egg on the ball in front of the crowd and like point in the air when the ball goes in for birdie and like, cheer them on as you're walking off the green is the level of fan engagement and a level of wherewithal that again, the PGA tour just really needs the PGA tour needs more guys like Minuli. They need guys that are willing to be that engaging and willing to be that fun, even if they're not having an ideal day. And I think that really struck me. 
So I really hope I get to see more Min Woo Lee and PGA Tour events. I know I believe he gained special temporary membership. Um, he's just the kind of he's a talent that golf needs with his age and how fun his different shots are. Um, again, that stinger two iron or driving iron he has is just sensual, just erotic. But golf needs more talents like Min Woo Lee, and I think that. was my big takeaway again from the week um going further down the leaderboard a little bit uh Tyrrell Hatton finished second that approach shot on 18 is one of the best shots I've ever seen uh on tv um I don't I have walked TPC Sawgrass many times I was on the grounds this Friday I'm from Jacksonville I went with my dad on Friday um it's first time I've been since 2019 uh when I got to go all four days and it was a blast i had such a fun time um always enjoy getting out to sawgrass it's you they're playing such a different game when you watch them in person um underrated shot of the week max homa's birdie on four on friday he hit it down the hill the pin was in that little collection area that it was typically in on sundays but in a slightly different spot and max was putting from up on top of the ridge and he hits this putt. He barely taps it. It's like a 35-footer, and it just trickles down, 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 and in. And from my angle, I was further back on the hole. I was about 40 yards short of the green looking up. I could only see how downhill the putt was. I didn't realize how far left it broke. And so the PGA Tour posted a video from behind Max, and he aimed like 12 feet right, and the ball just snapped towards the hole and ducked in. And there are so many slopes like that at TPC Sawgrass that really pop in person. But all of this to say, back to Tyrrell Hatton's second shot on 18. Um, I have stood near where Tyrrell Hatton's ball was on that second shot. And I don't know what gap he saw or what confidence he had. I mean, that is, again, I think another no laying up tweet from today. That is a $2 million bet. between a three and a six that you can make that ball turn to the right by starting it over the water, especially hitting a punch shot. That is a $2 million bet that you can pull off that shot. And you know what? Tyrrell Hatton won and he is two and a half million dollars richer for it or $3 million richer for it. Um, But yeah, just a great close. Uh, Tyrrell Hatton playing sneaky good golf. Um, I don't really know how that projects forward. Um, especially considering that six, like seven of his 12 strokes under par came today on his back nine. He was five under through 63 holes. Um, Bay Hills, of course, he's one at before. So I don't really know how this projects forward. I am still not all the way in on Tyrrell Hatton as like a guy to pick going forward. Uh, he did... He was third in the field in strokes gain approach for the week. Uh, so hitting his irons very, very well, as Tyrrell Hatton tends to do. Um, but a second place finish is a second place finish. And having, is that two in a row for him or did he finish fourth last week? Let me look before I purposely spread misinformation on the internet. Because I don't want to do that. 
but yeah, top 25 player in the world, Tyrell Hatton. Oh, that's not the right link, you dummy. There we go. Yeah, I believe he finished fourth last week. Yeah, T4. So, again, uh, two hard golf courses in a row, Tyrrell Hatton. Uh, well, if you include Phoenix, Tyrrell Hatton has a sixth, a fourth, and a second in his last four PGA Tour starts, a uh, 40th at Riviera mixed in there. Um, again, the last two weeks have been two really hard courses. Uh, he's only been 19 under overall. The two winning scores have only been – 25, 35 or 25 under so not really many low scores to be had but still he has a fourth and a second but six of his eight rounds or five of his eight rounds have been in the 70s so a lot of that came today I don't really know how much I bought in on Tyrrell Hatton trending right now but seeing that sixth place finish in Phoenix and being reminded that he is more than the last two weeks is also a bullish thing um, I'm not rushing to bet Tyrrell Hatton at the Masters, but if you want a good bet for someone to get out of their pool as a two seed in Austin in two weeks, if he's there, Tyrrell Hatton is vibing his face off right now. Um, Tom Hoagie, uh, new course record holder at DPC Sawgrass. Um, again, on the easiest day in court history, the history of the course, but still 10 birdies are 10 birdies, uh, two nines of 31. Um, shot an opening round 78 and not only managed to make the weekend, managed to finish third. Um, for context, Scotty Scheffler finished 17 under for the week. And this is not a, like, did Tom Hoagie play better than Scotty Scheffler comment? I swear it's not. But Scotty Scheffler finished 17 under for the week to win the players. Tom Hoagie was 16 under his last 53, or his last 54 holes. 53 holes. So however good Scotty Scheffler played today, though over the course of the full week to get to 17 under through 72 holes, Tom Hoagie was nearly that good in 54. And again, it's so much easier to do that when you are doing it from way behind. And it's so easy to do that when you are fighting for the cut and have no pressure on you. But Tom Hoagie's last three days, 10, 11, 12, 13. Tom Hoagie had 19 birdies and an eagle in his last 54 holes at TPC Sawgrass. He gained 3.7, 3.9, and 0.3 strokes approach. So over the weekend alone, he gained seven, three, oh boy, don't do math in public, kids. Uh, he gained 7.6 stroke gained approach over the last two rounds alone. Um, was just absolutely pin hunting the entire weekend. Um, and that includes a disastrous bogey at 11 and a double on the sixth hole. Um, 
Tom Hoagie, another one of Max Rigo's sleepers going into the week. Um, if you had told me on Thursday when Min Woo shot 68 and Tom Hoagie shot 78 that uh, my Min Woo pick would not be as good as Max Rigo's Tom Hoagie pick, I would have lost it. Um, so I'm very glad he is not here to take a victory lap on me uh, or this might have gotten ugly. Um, continuing to go on the leaderboard a little bit. Uh, Victor Hovland, T3. Kind of uninspiring. I don't hold on. I'll, I'll get to the biggest thing. David Lingmurth, T6. Uh, very good to see. Uh, a couple guys that I want to mention on here uh, Victor Hovland and Max Homa, specifically. Um, I'm a little conflicted about, and I'll get to this one more guy I want to mention at the end here. Um, Max Homa and Victor Hovland have had the same big criticism for me and for DJ of two guys that are DJ and I have gotten on Max Homa and Victor Hovland both in the past for not showing up in big events, uh, especially relative to their talent level. Max more so kind of recently. It's been a little more forgivable because Max only clearly elevated to a top 20 player in the world in the last 12 months. So he hasn't had as many chances. Uh, but Victor Hovland especially has been a top, top tier player for the better part of five years now and just hasn't shown up even in a stage. Like I don't want to say as small as the players, cause it's the fifth biggest tournament in professional golf, but even in a stage as small as the players. Um, and today, both of them got the 10 under, both of them got into a share of second at one point. It, it just felt a little fake. I mean, neither of them ever got within three shots. Neither of them ever really had a tangible chance to win. Um, both of them made a disappointing par at 16 when they had a chance to post 12 under like Tyrrell Hatton did and kind of make a, make a statement. Um, they just kind of let some opportunities squander. Uh, Victor Hovland got to 10 under on the 13th hole, parred the last five in, uh, poor tee shot on 16, left him behind the eight ball. Uh, Max got to 10 under on the 12th hole with a birdie there. Uh, finished with five pars and a double on 17. Um, the results will look good, and candidly, in a year, I'll probably be like, oh, yeah, Victor Hovland has a T3 at the players and Max is a T6 at the players. Um, but I'm hesitant to say that this was something that disproves the other criticisms or makes them invalid. I think that I still want to see both of them get into a tournament from the jump. And this is probably a little unfair because Victor Hovland did insert himself at the open at St. Andrews. Um, so, but Victor Hovland and Max Holm have both been guys that we've wanted to see get themselves involved from the get-go before, uh, and they haven't done so. And I don't think that this week, for me specifically, changed my mindset a lot on that. Um, but speaking of 17, Max Homa hit in the water on 17 at Sunday. 17, the sun, Sunday round at 17 at Sawgrass showed the ceiling of what that hole could be in my eyes. And I, again, shared this on Twitter going into it. Uh, with that wind, both being as consistent it was, as it was, being the direction it was, which was coming into and off of the left, um, and then having such a strong gust potential, 
there is no safe shot on that hole when that's the condition that you're in. And you saw that I think the group that exemplified that the most was the penultimate group on Sunday, Cam Davis and Tommy Fleetwood, uh, where Cam Davis tries to play a little long of the pin, um, doesn't quite judge the wind right, doesn't quite judge the distance right, and it lands on that back top shelf in the back left. And it lands. it's just a trampoline back there, and the ball just careams forward into the water. And he carried it too far. And then Tommy Fleetwood steps up and hits another ball that I think he liked in the air. But you look at the wind, like the wind meter on NBC's uh, channel, and when Cam Davis hit it, it was 15 miles an hour into, and when Tommy Fleetwood hit it, it was 23 miles an hour into. And so Tommy Fleetwood just watched Cam Davis go over the back. And it's like, all right, I guess the wind isn't as strong as I thought it was. And then the wind gusts, and Tommy Fleetwood comes up short in the water. And he looks kind of miffed walking off that tee box. He's like, I don't really know what I did wrong. Um, and I think that is those kind of conditions are when that holes like subtle architectural brilliance kind of pops out. And I think there are other conversations to be had about the architecture of the 17th hole after this week. I think there are a lot of funnel pin placements there that the PGA tour uses a lot. I mean, as evidenced by three hole in ones in one week, uh, which is also ridiculous. Uh, there were three hole in ones in the 17th hole of the TPC sawgrass this week. Um, which is another conversation I've had with my dad. There were, I believe from 1990 until 2015, there were four hole-in-ones, three hole-in-ones at TPC Sawgrass ever. And there have been seven in the last seven years of the players. I mean, there have been funnel pins that are used more often than the players are starting to figure out uh, those front pins are the worst offenders, especially when the conditions are docile like they were on Thursday and Friday or Thursday and Saturday. I mean, guys can just throw a dart onto a backboard and hope that it gets the right break. Um, and again, I don't mean this in any context towards Hayden Buckley, Aaron Rye, or Alex Smalley, who made the three hole-in-ones. Um, but if three hole-in-ones in one week on the PGA Tour, um, Statistically possible, and again, you play enough weeks in the PGA Tour, it's going to happen eventually. But I feel like if they all come in the same hole, you got to kind of reevaluate where those pin locations are going. Um, and Smalley's was a bit different. He one-hopped it in. That's just kind of dumb luck a little bit. Uh, sorry, Alex Smalley. Um, but it's a little bit of dumb luck that a ball happens to do that. But the two from Buckley and Rye were feeder pins candidly and it's something that i think doesn't fully capture the subtleties of that green in a way that i think so oh excuse me in a way that i think the way that i think sunday's round really kind of did and i think that that wind direction that i was talking about with cam davis and tommy fleetwood's group um emphasized how there's not like when the wind is whipping like that and gusting, there isn't a safe shot on 17. Because if you go towards the right side of that green, you are taking a small, like a longer carry distance and a smaller target into play because you have to clear that bunker while also not going over the back of the green. Um, and Sean Martin tweeted earlier today that Sahib Sagal in the first group of Sunday cleared the bunker by like a yard and still nearly went over the back end of the water. Um, but you landed on that back shelf to the left of it 
And if it takes the wrong bounce, it's just going to bounce over the back. Um, but if you land it short of that top slope and you spin it down, uh, A, if the pin is not down there on that front edge, now you have one of the hardest two putts on the entire course, especially if it's down where the pin is on Sunday. Um, and if you hit it into that, like into the upslope on the front left part of the green and spin it too hard, it might go in the water. Um, so right is dangerous. Like right feels safer, quote unquote, because if you can control your distance, it'll just feed down to the hole. But you only have about a six yard window to really land it in. And when the wind is gusting like that, you're just kind of hoping that you get, get guess right about how hard it is. And then if you play left, which is like the fatter part of the green, um, if you guess too short and the ball flies long, it might bound over from that top section. And if you guess too short and the ball lands short, the ball's going to roll back. And now all of a sudden you're putting up one slope down another, and it's like bending 40 feet left, like right the entire way. And you have one of the hardest two putts that I've ever seen. And so, I mean, Scotty and Minwoo both made it look super, super easy, but I think a day with the wind whipping like that just kind of emphasized how awesome the 17th hole can be in the right conditions, especially when a tournament's on the line. I mean, it is kind of a shame. It's not the only windy Sunday we're ever going to get, especially in March. Uh, Jacksonville weather is slightly more temperamental in March than it is in May, but it's not the last windy Sunday that we're going to get, but it did kind of suck that like perfect conditions for that kind of chaos on 17 happened on a day where the tournament was like kind of out of reach. Um, and yeah, I mean, you even saw that I think in the last was in the last 10 groups that played 17, there were six balls in the water. Like the last 20 guys, 30% of the last 20 players to play 17 hit the ball in the water, I believe. So if you make 20% of the best players in the world miss a massive green with a pitching wedge, that's a good design. It's, it's, it's really cool to watch players struggle with that in the wind. Um, but my last note for the week uh, before I end off here, um, Colin Morikawa, uh, I don't really know how to feel about the week. He ends at seven under tied for 13th, um, which is also uh, exactly what he was after uh, one round. He shot that 65 round one. And it felt like we were kind of watching a bit of a return, like a resurgence with Colin Morikawa, which by the way is utterly ridiculous that we're already calling it a resurgence with Colin Morikawa. He's won two majors and he's 25, but it felt like we were watching a little bit of a resurgence, a guy who really struggled last season, kind of find it again. Um, and then uh, Friday played a bit tougher conditions, uh, shot 73, didn't feel like a bad round, and then just a complete lack of answering the bell on Saturday. Um, was two over through eight and shot 72 on a day where the scoring average was 69 and a half uh, and just got lapped and left behind. Um, 
I don't know. I don't really know what else there is to say about Morikawa at this point. Um, I don't really have much of a take to be had here other than the fact that I feel like he's very clearly still a work in progress. I think a lot of the narratives early in the week uh, that came out of his Thursday round were, oh, Colin Morikawa missed the cut at Bay Hill, and then he came to Sawgrass and worked on the range for a couple hours and refound that cut, and now it's just working again. And I don't really know if that's how that works. I think it's going to be a work in progress for anybody. Um, and again, you saw that uh, over the weekend, his approach play just really kind of dropped off. He only gained a tenth of a stroke on uh, Saturday, gained just over a stroke on Sunday, which is a average round for Colin Morikawa, which is, again, a nut sentence within itself. But lost strokes off the tee, uh, the last two days, barely gained any strokes on Friday, uh, really struggled around the greens on uh, Friday and Saturday. Uh, just kind of felt like whack-a-mole um, with him on uh, on Friday at 73, hit great irons and didn't really do anything else super well. Uh, on Saturday, lost strokes on the green especially, but kind of everywhere. And then Sunday, he hit great irons and was good around the greens, but couldn't get out of the tee box and put himself in position. So, yeah, just a bit of a disappointing week for a player of his caliber, especially if you start off with a 65. Um, and I don't really know how to compartmentalize it right now. Um, just felt a little flat the entire week. I mean, there was never a – it didn't feel like we were watching him really fight his game either. It just kind of felt flat. And it just felt like he woke up on the wrong side of the bed on Saturday, on the wrong day, uh, got stuck in neutral for a little bit, and then looked around and everyone else was six strokes past him. Um, I don't know what else to say. I don't really have – I'm not worried about Colin Morikawa long term, um, but it does feel fair as a reminder – to say that Colin Morikawa hasn't won a PGA Tour event since the Open at Royal St. George's, um, which was longer ago than it sounds. I mean, Colin Morikawa has, again, he had two, he has five wins and two majors. Scotty Scheffler has won six times since Colin Morikawa's last win. And he's far too young for us to be critical of it. Again, he's 26. He just turned 26 last month. Um, but at the same point that is reaching the stage where it's become a little bit of a drought and it needs to be addressed in some capacity. So I don't know. I don't, I'm not sitting here saying Colin Morikawa is struggling. I think he's going to win in 2023 at some point. I think he's on the way back towards that. Um, Obviously, he led by six in the Tournament of Champions uh, and just got caught by John Rahm, struggled a little bit around the greens. Um, he had a third place at the Farmers, um, opened with a 65 here, uh, had a really good week at... It wasn't Phoenix, because I picked him in Phoenix and he struggled with Phoenix. I picked him at Phoenix and I picked him at Bay Hill, or I acknowledged him at Bay Hill at both times. He has not played well that I've acknowledged him, but all the other ones uh, that he's played so far this year. Um, 
But yeah, it feels kind of silly for a guy who has so far this season. Uh, so since the new year, he's finished second, third, cut, T6, cut, T13. So other than two bad weeks in Phoenix and Bay Hill, again, the two that I was like, hey, look at uh, look at Colin Morikawa. Um, he's got three top sixes in the 13th in six starts. So Colin Morikawa is very clearly closer than we all like to think that he is. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he ends up peaking for major season, especially with his demeanor and his mental caliber. He's already proven. Um, but there was a bell that very clearly went off in Scotty Scheffler and everyone else's minds, especially on Saturday, that he just didn't answer in time. And again, it's hypocritical for me to acknowledge that I just went on this whole spiel earlier in this podcast about how I think we overrate what clutchness is and all of these guys know how to win golf tournaments and sometimes they just get lucky and sometimes they don't or sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But Colin Morikawa had a lot of those go his way really quickly and now he's had a lot of them not go his way in a row. Um, And so I'm interested to see how he responds. I'm interested to see um, what we see from him moving forward this year. Again, he's 15th in the FedEx Cup without a win so far this season. It's going to come. Um, and he's playing really well. Uh, so if you look at the Data Golf World rankings, he is, which he's always kind of struggled in those. His stats never really mirror his world rank because his peak weeks are so good. Um, but his, his Data Golf World rank right now is 10th. I mean, his rolling average currently is better than it was 100 rounds ago. Um, so he's 10th in the golf world rankings, uh, 10th in the official world golf rankings. Uh, he's got the highest rolling average he's had in 100 rounds over the last two stretches. Uh, his his last five rounds have the highest rolling average he's had um, in a year. So, yeah, I think Colin Morikawa is poised for a really big summer. I think he's on the verge of putting it all together. Um, and the more I'm sitting here on this, I'm talking myself into the fact that he might win a major this year. Um, but it also feels worth mentioning that he put himself in position at a course that really should suit his game. I mean, a T13 is something to turn your nose up at, but TBC Sawgrass probably more than any other course in the PGA Tour, the one that values accuracy and precision with your iron play more than it does distance. And so it was very curious to me that Colin Morikawa had struggled here in his previous two starts, which, as he said in media, were two very strange seasons. Uh, 2021, there was nobody here. 2022 was very weird weather-wise, and he caught a weird draw. Um, but a course that really should have suited his game to a tee, and he was perfectly set up on Thursday and just didn't figure it out. But that's all I had uh, for my players' recap. Again, it was really great to get out to see TPC Sawgrass. Um, so one of my favorite courses of the year. I think it's such an incredible test. I could if I had more time and hadn't just spent the last 50 minutes talking about the players this week and how they played, I could ramble on and on about how good of a golf course it is, how well-designed it is. Um, Pete Dye really forces you to hit one risky and courageous shot a hole if you want to play well. Um, You're not allowed to be timid. You're not allowed to be cowardly. You're not allowed to just dink and dunk your way around and let other people make mistakes. You have to take it by the horns and hit a shot at some point. 
Um, and I think it's really such an incredible test of golf. Um, yeah. Oh, last note, uh, Rory. I, I said, I mentioned Rory earlier. Um, I'm not really super concerned about Rory. Um, he gained more than a stroke around off the tee, more than a stroke around with his irons, uh, could not chip, could not putt. Um, not super concerned about that. He's been better with the putter over the last two years than he ever has been. Uh, his around the green game has always been among the top 30 guys on tour. Um, I'm willing to rule that out as an aberration, especially at a place like Sawgrass. Um, that is such a strange test. Um, but did have some interesting comments this week. He said he wished he could play the driver from last year. Uh, didn't like that he had to adjust to a new one. Um, and I saw a lot of interesting discourse about it on Twitter. Um, which, for one, I think a couple things can simultaneously be true. I think that, one, uh, we want players to be more honest. And Rory gave us an honest answer. And so for that, he should be appreciated. Um, two... It is kind of silly that equipment manufacturers, especially with players of Rory's caliber, it is both silly from the perspective of the player that you have to play the new equipment every time it comes out, um, no matter what. And it is also silly from the side of the manufacturer to be like, yeah, like you are the best driver of the golf ball on the planet and we are trying to advertise this driver. You need to play it and show that you like it. Um, and so it's a really interesting conversation. Again, Colin Morikawa also is not playing the new TaylorMade Stealth Driver. So interesting thing to look forward to the rest of the year. TaylorMade Golf had a bit of a drive-by about it. Um, they posted about how Scotty Scheffler used that driver that Rory said he did not like uh, en route to victory. Um, I don't really feel like there's any cause for alarm with Rory. This is a course that he's had a bit of a mercurial relationship with in the past. He has a win here in a couple of top tens, but he's also missed the cut six times in 13 tries. Um, not a course that really sets up well for him. And again, not a course that really sets up well for anybody. Max and I talked about that extensively going into last week, that you really just have to be playing well at Sawgrass, and there's not really a way around it. Um so sometimes if a little part of you is off, it you're off. And I think Rory is figuring out that driver a little bit. I think he's not. I I think there's validity to both the idea that he was more confident over the driver from last year and that it's jarring to adjust to a new club when you didn't feel like there was a reason to leave the old club. Uh, and I think that's a really valid, especially in a sport that's as mental as golf. I also understand from TaylorMade perspective why they're like, yeah, you you have to play the driver. Like you are part of what we advertise our drivers around. You cannot just say that it's bad. Um, I think we'll figure it out. He's figured it out with equipment in the past. Um, I think he's closer than it sounds. I think he was just losing some stuff in like slightly uncomfortable directions at Sawgrass, but not anything like bad. It was just like, I'm in the rough on this side of the hole rather than the fairway or I'm on the wrong side of the fairway. Um, but still just an interesting thing to keep note of going forward that Rory is very, very dissatisfied with TaylorMade's current driver, the Stealth. Um, but again, looking at Rory's uh, ball striking data, not really super concerned about him going forward, um, but a miscut to keep an eye on. And one of his less impressive performances of the season. It does feel like Scotty and Rob are kind of putting a little distance between themselves and Rory and putting himself as number three right now. But again, those guys are also talented to like within 
I mean, I said Scotty Scheffler was the number one player in the world emphatically. Three weeks ago, I said John Rahm was the number one player in the world emphatically. <laughs> um, in three weeks, we could be saying Rory's the number one player in the world emphatically. Uh, especially because we were less than a month from the Masters. So we are in God, such a great lead up uh, to the best event of, this, of the calendar year. Um, but yeah, that is all that I had from TPC and getting out to Sawgrass and how awesome of a course it is. Uh, one of my favorite play, uh, tournaments of the year, one of my favorite tests of the year uh, and revealed a very, very deserving champion if a somewhat boring Sunday because of how deserving he was. So uh, if you made it this far into the podcast, thank you for listening. I promise DJ will be back uh, when we are recording again. Uh, we will have a little bit of the All-Spar preview content coming your way at some point this week uh, when I've had a little more time to dig into the data a little bit. And uh, we will be back to talk about more golf at some point soon. So thank you for listening to our players' content this week. Thank you for following along. And have a great rest of your night. I've been Ryan, and I will see you next time on the Double Cross Podcast.